Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tommy. You know, the, the wild thing is, is Tom is the only one that has thrown Gatorade at me the last two services. So I don't know what's, uh, what's going on. Uh, if you need a Bible, uh, go ahead and lift your hand up and we'll be sure to bring you a Bible. So if there's anybody in here, you, you don't have a Bible, we can get one in your hands. Just put your hand up. And as you get it, you want to go ahead, church, and find 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I just want to say it is so incredible to be here and see what God has done over the last several years. It's been quite a while since I've been back here at Calvary Chapel Springfield and seen the work. And I'll tell you, it's a blessing because you know what? You've grown and God has blessed the ministry and it's sweet to see what's going on. And uh, church, I even got to see kind of your future home this week, and I'm excited to see how God provides and uh, the opportunities that God uh, opens up in the years and months to come for you. So it's a, it's a neat privilege to be here. Second Samuel chapter 9. Now the title of the message this morning is A Friendly Reminder. A Friendly Reminder. If you want to go ahead and find the first verse of 2 Samuel 9, it says, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. And the king said, Is there still Someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said, the king, said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emil, in low Debar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Emil, from low Debar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given you your master's son, or your master's son, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son will have food to eat, but Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a younger son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba um, were servants. All that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. 
Would you bow for a, a moment of prayer? Father, we come before you and we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated to us through your scripture your great love, your truth, your holiness, your desire for us as believers. And so, God, I pray as your scripture is open that you would do a work in our hearts and our lives. Father, that you would take your truth and that, um, Lord, our affection, our love for you would grow all the more that your son Jesus would be high and lifted up. God, I pray that you would take your word, and if anybody is, Lord, afar off from you, in need of forgiveness, need of being rescued and saved from their guilt and their shame, that they would look unto Jesus and be saved this morning. And so, God, we ask that you would work, that you would be honored through the preaching and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen. Have you ever received a friendly reminder? Right? You go out to the mail and you open it up and you pull out all the mail and you look through, uh, usually a bunch of junk mail, right? And then there's one little postcard and the postcard says, a friendly reminder from your dentist of your upcoming cleaning. You kind of go, I don't know if the dentist and I are on friendly terms but it's a little reminder, right? A friendly reminder. You may get an email that lets you know, just a friendly little reminder that your internet security is going to expire in 14 days. And it's usually in really large red font. Renew now. Just a friendly little reminder. I think of some of you students, right? You come into your classroom and your teacher reminds you, hey, just a friendly little reminder that tomorrow your 12 page paper is due And you're like, that's not very friendly. Twelve pages, single spaced. You know, we have here this morning a friendly little reminder that comes in our text in chapter 9. A friendly little reminder of what is referred to in Scripture as God's loving kindness. David has a moment in his, his kingdom and in his life where he is reminded of His promises to a dear friend by the name of Jonathan to show loving kindness. Kindness kind of runs throughout the scripture. That Hebrew word for kindness is referred to or is pronounced hesed. And for our time together, it would would best be understood as this, that loving kindness, that hesed. It's when a person whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. When Miles Coverdale in 1535 was working on his translation of the scripture, his Bible, he took that Hebrew word hesed and he coined a brand new word, the word loving kindness. It's God's kindness, his mercy, his goodness. But this kindness that we are going to be reminded of in this chapter, in this friendly reminder, is actually best illustrated rather than defined. So let me illustrate it this way. There's a man by the name of Samuel Cisse. He runs a uh, ministry in West Africa called EduNation. The ministry's main focus is to build schools and to provide education for the poor children of West Africa. Samuel has his ministry there and it was developed and going. But then in 2014 in Sierra Leone where he was stationed, the Ebola outbreak 
hit the area. And the government had given certain restrictions that had come that anybody that was exposed to or around with or having contact with somebody who had contact with Ebola would have to quarantine at home for three weeks. Well, as Ebola swept through, there were many families that were quarantined and it quickly came to light that many of these families were starving to death during the quarantine. They didn't have the food or the resources to be stuck at home, and the government wasn't able to meet the need of the people. And so Samuel Cisse quickly went into action, and his ministry shifted, and they began to deliver food to the parents of these children that were quarantined to literally save lives. Well, one of the ministry workers by the name of John had been removed from his position within Edunation because they had found out some charges of misappropriation were true. And so they had released him from his duties, but after they released him, John did some not-so-Christian things. He went to the local witch doctor in the area and hired him to pronounce a death curse on Samuel and his family, like, God bless you, brother. And as this went on, it quickly came to light that one of John's children was playing with another child whose mom had Ebola, which meant instantly John and his entire family were quarantined for three weeks. Here's what's wild. John was quarantined in his house with his family, 23 people. You think it's a little tight in your house. Well, Samuel quickly learned of John, the one who had cursed him, spread hate about him, was in dire need, and Samuel went into action, and for those three weeks, he delivered food to John's house, and not a single member in John's family went without. After the three weeks were over, John broke through the barriers and repented and asked for prayer and acknowledged the loving kindness of Samuel that he did not deserve or earn. There is here a friendly reminder of God's kindness for you and I. You see, we've got to set this in the right context. If you were to look at chapter 9, you would look and see that chapter 8 came before chapter 9, and chapter 7 came before chapter uh, 9, and chapter 7 is this wonderful display of God's loving kindness to David. It's in chapter 7 that David has this idea and desire to build the Lord a house. And he comes to the prophet like, hey, I've got it. I'm going to build a house for the Lord. We're going to do something for him. And God comes to David and says, David, you're not going to build a house for me. Instead, God says, David, I'm going to do something through you. And God in his loving kindness says, David, I'm going to build in you a house, a kingdom, and a throne that will last forever. And so it's this, this tidal wave of God's loving kindness upon David, saying, David, I'm going to do things for you and through you that you do not deserve. And David in chapter 7 is just sopping wet in the loving kindness of God. And then you see in chapter 8, it's being established. In chapter 8, if you just peruse through it really quick, you'd see things like, and David defeated, and David defeated, and David defeated. He went through, and he has seen God establish his kingdom. 
and his enemies are being put under his foot. In chapter 8 and verse 6, it says the Lord preserved David wherever he went. It says in chapter 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all people. David has all of this victory. He is sopping wet in the loving kindness of God where God says, no, I'm going to do stuff for you that you do not deserve, that you have not earned because I'm a God of loving kindness. And so we have in our text in verse 3, David dripping, sopping wet with God's loving kindness. And it says in verse 3, that I may show the kindness of God. This great little picture, I've got some encouragement for you. In Springfield, Missouri, in the middle of February, I'm here to tell you that summer is coming. I think of summer will come, and what happens in summer You have the pool party. All of you teenagers, you stand with your friends looking at the pool and you're like, okay, let's jump in. No, you first. No, you first. Let's go together. Okay, one, two, three. You didn't jump in. We were supposed to go together, right? The pool party. You jump into the water, the little kids, and they get out of the water and they're sopping wet. And a good little kid looks for an aunt or an uncle or a grandma and grandpa that's dry. And what do they do? They run up to them and they hug them and all of a sudden your shirt sticks to your side and your wet jeans make your legs itch and they just want to share that water with you. David's dripping wet and he goes, I want to hug somebody that's dry with the loving kindness of God. And he looks for somebody in the house of Saul. And it's from here that we get our friendly reminder in three indicators of kindness. If you're taking notes, they're worth writing down. We'll see it unfold in the text. The first indicator of kindness that we'll look at is a kindness to reassure. A kindness to reassure. The second indicator of kindness in our text will be the kindness to restore. The kindness to restore. The third indicator of kindness will be the kindness to receive. But in order for us to see just how great and amazing this kindness is, as as David has experienced the loving kindness of God to establish his kingdom and his throne, his house forever, that God had subdued his enemies, we've got to set the scene because we know that this kindness is, is different. It is to give to somebody what they do not deserve, what they do not expect, what is not their right, which is where things begin to unfold in verse 1. Look at this. David says, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? Now stop right there. Don't look at the rest of the verse. And imagine if there was a period right there. Chapter 8, what's chapter 8 all about? David subduing his enemy, right? He defeats one enemy after another. So if it stopped right there and David says, is there anybody left from the house of Saul? What would you expect? Saul was an enemy of David, was he not? Did he not mistreat David? Was he not a a king before David of a different line and a different family? If it stopped right there, what would it be? Is David saying, I got just one more finished business with the house of Saul. But what does the verse go on to say? That I might show kindness. Do you see it? Look at this. David is not coming in to do harm but rather to do what? To show kindness. Your friendly reminder comes in the, the reason for Jonathan's sake. 
In other words, David has experienced all the loving kindness of God to establish his kingdom, his house, and his throne forever. And now David remembers the the promise of loving kindness he made to his dear friend Jonathan all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. In chapter 20, David and his best friend Jonathan, their hearts were knit together and having experienced the, the kindness and the love of the Lord, they promised to one another in the Lord that they would show the kindness of the Lord to one another. And David even promised that, Jonathan, whether you are alive or you are dead, to your family, I will show this kindness. And so David, instead of saying, where's the house of Saul that I might extinguish him? Where's the house of Saul? Because my heart has given me a friendly reminder that I would show kindness to his family. Undeserved, unearned. Remember that kindness is when a person whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. And it begins to unfold in chapter 9. There's something interesting about chapter 9. The central character of this episode is not David. David's like the rock star of 1st and 2nd Samuel. He's kind of one of those big hitters of the entire Old Testament and, and shows up quite a bit in mention in the New Testament. But here the writer breaks, and actually the main central character of chapter 9 isn't even mentioned by name until verse 6. It's the man Mephibosheth, a descendant of Saul, the son of his beloved friend Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul. And though we don't even get his name until verse 6, we get all these details about him, and it helps us really get the effect of this kindness that is shown. Matter of fact, before you even get his name, notice what is brought out in verse 3. You see first that he's lame in his feet. Mephibosheth is actually defined by his disability. It's tragic. Look at it there in verse 3. It says, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. This grandson of the former king, one who mistreated David, is described really throughout 2 Samuel as one who is disabled, who is a crippled. It says in in chapter 4, in verse 4 of 2 Samuel, he fell and became lame. It says in our text twice, in verse 3 and in verse 13, that he is lame in his feet. If that's not enough to see how he's defined and described in chapter 19, twice in verse 24 and 26, he didn't care for his feet. And Mephibosheth's own words, he says, your servant is lame. This is a guy who could not walk. This is a guy that could not move. This is a guy who was sadly being defined by his disability. He knew what it was like every morning to wake up and to get punched in the gut by the reality That he was immobile. Here's what's crazy. That lame in his feet. Happened on the day. He ran in fear. Because he learned his dad was dead. And his grandpa was dead. At the age of five. When word had come. That dad and grandpa were gone. He ran for his life. And he fell. And became lame in his feet. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, explains the details. But you have this moment, listen. The day that Mephibosheth walked through the valley of the shadow of death, dad and grandpa are dead, was the last day he walked. 
Every morning when he looked at his crippled feet, it was not only a reminder of his inability, it was the reminder of the loss in his life. Remember, that kindness is to those that don't expect it, don't deserve it. He's lame in his feet, but look at secondly, he's exiled. You find in verse 4 and verse 5, he's found in the house of Maker. Another man took him in and cared for him. He didn't have the means to provide for himself. He didn't have the ability to um, meet his uh, needs and the needs of his family. He's literally living under the care of another person. This man maker shows up in the Old Testament, and he's really a man marked by kindness himself. He's kind to Saul. He's kind to David. And he's opened his home to Mephibosheth who has remained for him for a long time. But look at the exile. He's not only being cared by, some, cared by, by somebody else, but he's in a place in verse 4 and 5 called Lo-Debar. Go ahead and look at that place and understand that it's often translated, Lo-Debar is translated no pasture. It is in an area east of the Jordan River near the border of Gad. And listen to how Lodabar is described by one commentator. It is generally believed that the village was on the fringe of civilization, facing eastward and outlooking miles of barren, trackless desert. It was so insignificant that in Amos chapter 6, verse 13, Lodabar is used as a synonym for something without value. It's literally nothing. This place is so far out on the outskirts. This is the place you go to hide and never be found. Like this Lodabar is so out in exile, so away from civilization, that it's the place where all the property lines are divided out with um, fences with no trespassing signs everywhere. We don't want people to come. Lodabar is where you find the no trespassing sign that reads, Prayer is the best way to meet the Lord. Trespassing is faster. It's in exile. Verse 5, he's dependent on others. The king sends for him and brings him back. Mephibosheth can't walk. Mephibosheth can't meet his own needs. Mephibosheth has gone out to the fringe to be lost and to be forgotten but David finds him. Remember that background of chapter 8 and Saul's dealings with David. And imagine what it's like if you're Mephibosheth and David sends a group to come and get you. Well, they found me. Well, I guess this is the end. He's thrown on an animal and he's Taken back to the king, and you can imagine the fear that fills Mephibosheth's heart, a fear that has followed him since he was five years old, because he fled in fear. Contrast the two. Think about it. He comes into the palace, and here you have David in all of his opulence. You have David who walks the halls of the cedar-paneled palace. You have David that has the fragrance of royalty, who has all of the attire of king. And then there is Mephibosheth, the exile, the desert dweller, the crippled that is brought into his presence. Your heart races for Mephibosheth. He has 
nothing to bring. But this is where the kindness comes in. The first indicator of kindness, the kindness to reassure. You see Mephibosheth before the king. You understand the differences. You see that he has nothing. And you can understand how David responds, verse 7, Do not fear. Mephibosheth thinks he's a dead man. But look at what David does. He comes right in and reassures him in his moment of panic, reassures him in his moment of fear. You know how real fear is. There may even be moments, if you look at where David's at and how things have changed, notice this, David isn't prideful and insecure and tries to promote himself over Mephibosheth. There's like a really good indicator for us. You and I should be marked by this kindness, and it's a kindness to reassure somebody. But there may be moments in our own flesh, our own insecurities, our own pride, when we want to play with the prey like a cat with a mouse when we're above somebody. And we have one up. Enjoying the upper hand, playing with somebody's emotions, is not the mark of a believer. We're to be marked by kindness. What does kindness that reassure do? First, it quickly extinguishes fear. The reassurance of this man who thinks I'm dead, expecting the last thing for him to feel is a cold, sharpened blade come across his neck, is told, do not be afraid. That's important throughout Scripture. Do you remember when the angels showed up to the shepherds at the birth of Jesus and they're freaking out and what do the angels say to him? Do not be afraid. Do you remember when the angel came to Mary and said, Mary, you are highly favored. You are going to give birth to the Messiah. You teenage girl, you are blessed. And Mary was greatly afraid. And what did the angel say? Do not be afraid. John in the book of Revelation, in the presence of Jesus, is so overwhelmed. And what did Jesus say to him? Do not be afraid. And David comes in and says, do not be afraid. He extinguishes the fear. But there's something important to see here. David actually meant what he said. Right? Like you can have moments where you tell, hey, do not be afraid. Like how are you going to help me with that? What do you know? We'll put it this way. Let's just imagine that You come to that moment in age, whether it's arthritis or an accident, something happens that your your hip is bothering you. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, it's that time in life. You need a hip replacement. And you're like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. You're a little uneasy. But the day comes for your hip replacement procedure and you've got to be at the hospital extremely early. One of those like 530 in the morning check in for pre-op and all of that. And and for some awkward reason, now follow me here, you can't get a a family member or a friend or somebody to take you. People just aren't available. It's not that you're not loved. It's just they're not available. And so you do what we do in our modern society. You get on your cell phone and you maybe um, order an Uber to take you to the hospital. There that silver honda civic pulls up to your front yard at 5 30 in the morning and you with a little trepidation in your heart and mind go out and hop in the car you get in the back and your driver begins to drive you and noticing that you're to go to the hospital says hey um i notice i'm dropping you off at the hospital you know you okay and you open up a little bit and say yeah i'm just i'm a little fearful today i'm getting a hip replacement and your uber driver says a hip replacement i've watched those things on youtube Matter of fact, did you know when they do that, 
They use Makita power tools. They should have a banner in the operation room that says, sponsored by Makita. And you're like, well, I'm, just, I'm a little afraid. And they're like, yeah, I can see why. And they pull up and you hop out of the car and then they roll down the window of that silver Honda Civic and they, hey, hey, come here. And you come over to the window and they say, hey, don't be afraid. You're like, whatever. <laughs> now, let's put it this way. You sit down with your surgeon. Surgeon says, you okay? No, I'm a little afraid. And they say this to you, you know what? Listen, I've done thousands of these. Matter of fact, not only have I done thousands of hip replacements, but I went to training and to the university that pioneered hip replacement. Not that I go to the place that pioneered hip replacement, but, but I actually um, heard lecture and worked with the doctors that, that kind of pioneered the program. And just so you know, not only have I done thousands of these in my, my practice, but I go every year to a one-week conference specifically for hip replacement where I meet with doctors all around the world and, and we stay as up-to-date as possible on all of the new cutting-edge procedures and the way to do this. And I just got back from it. And, and out of the thousands that I have done, I really I haven't had any issues. So you know what? Do not be afraid. Do you see the difference? King David, who has the power of life and death in his hands, quickly extinguishes that fear. Do not, or do not be afraid. He has the power to drive it. There's meaning behind it. And look at what you find. He reveals his motives behind it. How do I reassure? I extinguish fear. How do I reassure? In kindness? I'm quick to reveal my motives. If you look at verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7, look at David's motive to show kindness. To show kindness for his father's sake. To show kindness because he has a friendly reminder of his promise that he had made. It's this extraordinary kindness that meets the extreme needs of outsiders. Remember, it's that kindness that, that does and gives to those that do not deserve, that have nothing to give, that have not earned it, that do not, um, are, are not expecting it. And when it lands on Mephibosheth, notice verse 8, he falls and it's like, why should you look upon such a dead dog as I? Do you see how humble he is by it? Now, dogs in David's time were looked at a lot differently than dogs in our time. They didn't take their dogs in strollers with sweaters on to Bass Pro and push them around. Dogs were nuisances. And look at how humbled he is. I'm like a, a dead dog. You see that loving kindness that comes in his life? Ask yourself this question, are, are you letting someone sit in fear that you can help alleviate that fear? Are you just watching them squirm? If you have been deeply hurt and you are hiding your intentions because you want to hurt the person that's wronged you, that's not loving kindness. Be quick to respond in love to those in fear. Look at the first indicator of kindness. It reassures. 
Now look at the second indicator. It's kindness to restore. Remember, Mephibosheth has absolutely nothing to offer, nothing to give. He comes thinking he's a dead man, and the kindness begins to come on. You can start to see his rags are beginning to be wet with the loving kindness of God from David. But he continues to soak in with the kindness to restore. If you look at verse 7, you see very clearly David pronounces, and I will, dis- I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. If you peruse through 8 through 12, you see that David also enacts Ziba, one of Saul's former servants, his sons and his servants, to care for the land that he's giving to Mephibosheth. There's something special about the kindness to restore. Remember Mephibosheth, his entire life has been marked by loss. He lost his father. He lost his grandfather. He lost his um, mobility. He lost his hopes and his future. He lost his place within the nation. But look at verse 7. David says, I'm going to restore. Mephibosheth's life has had the seconds clicked by and they've ticked one loss after another. But are you still looking at verse 7? That word restore means to turn back. David says, today Mephibosheth, The seconds of loss that have clicked by, the clock is going to begin to run backwards. And we're going to restore what you've lost. Do you remember where Mephibosheth was found? Lodabar. He was found in a place in the middle of the wilderness desert, a place called No Pasture. But what happened that day as the clock turned backwards? He got all the fields and property of his grandfather Saul. If you look closely, look at this, this kindness to restore, you find in verse 10 and verse 12 of the text that David or that um, Mephibosheth actually had a son named Micah. And not only does this restoring turn back the clock to bless Mephibosheth, but it blesses his family, his sons and his son's son and his son's son's son. It's so incredible, this kindness to restore, that if you were to look at 1 Chronicles 8, 34 through 40, you would find that David's loving kindness to Mephibosheth actually saves and preserves the heritage and the name of Saul himself. This kindness to restore is not just for Mephibosheth, but his sons and his son's son and his son's son's son. It's this loving kindness to restore. To restore, you see, he turns back what was lost. In a world of finders, keepers, losers, weepers, kindness returns and restores. You look at verse 9 through 10, you see the king calls Ziba to take care of what is given, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants will till the land, harvest it, and bring food in. Here we have Mephibosheth restored to position in the kingdom, the family name in good standing, his voice and his name heard, but this kindness restored also function. It would have been overwhelming for a man that couldn't walk to be given all of this. How could he keep it up? It's kind of like this. You you see those moments on TV where people win all these prizes and you're like, whoa, it's like, you want a new car and a new boat and a trip around the world and you're like, lucky. And then some day comes in April. Right? 
tax day. And they find out all those great prizes they won that were worth $100,000 they owe taxes on. But look at this with this kindness that restores. I give it all back to you, but I also restore the function. It's kind of in a way David saying, and I'm paying the taxes. It's not a burden to you. It's a restore to function. The land is prosperous. Listen to this, church. Do you know in this kindness to restore that God has called us to this? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 through 20, we, we are reminded of God's restoring work in our lives that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. No longer call, counting people's sins against them, he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Paul goes on to say, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Have you ever thought of how great of a declaration of the kindness of God when you tell your neighbors, when you tell others, come back to God. He'll restore your function. He'll restore what has been lost in sin. He will come in and reassure your heart that there is forgiveness and that you're not damned in Christ. Come back to God. Look at this final indicator in our time. It's kindness to receive. I don't know if you noticed when we read through the whole chapter that there's kind of a, a, a big push that David really wants to get across in this moment. Really, really clear. It's like David says, but Mephibosheth is going to eat at my table continually. Look at verse 7. The last little bit of verse 7. And you shall eat bread at my table. How often, church? Always. Continually. Go down to verse 10. Find the sentence. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table. How often? Always go down to verse 11. Do you see what David really wants to make clear? He shall eat the last little part of the sentence. He shall eat at my table like one of the king's what sons. Go to verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem for he ate how often? Continually, always at the king's the third indicator of kindness is a kindness to receive and look at what you see four times in the text david very clearly says and today we're pulling up a chair at my table if you glance at 7 10 11 and 13 you can hear one of the royal dining chairs of the king sliding on the marble floor as it's being pushed up to the table and it's Mephibosheth's seat. You have one who is no longer in hiding but in prominence at the king's table. He's no longer destitute but he's restored at the king's table. He's no longer forgotten but well-respected at the king's table. He's no longer rejected. But received. At the king's table. 
Do you understand what unfolds with a seat at the king's table? It's a special privilege. It signifies a particular favor. It's this moment where David is saying, I am putting favor and I'm showing you this kindness that you have a seat at my table. But here's what's incredible. Do you remember how often, how often does Mephibosheth sit at the king's table? Always. There's something great about this. We all have those moments where you plan like a once in a lifetime event or a once in a lifetime trip. And when it's like a once in a lifetime trip or a once in a lifetime event, you want to get a souvenir, right? To remember it. Mephibosheth, though, is always going to eat at the king's table. So it's not like I had this once in a lifetime moment. I'm going to eat at the king's table. So should I try to steal a salt, salt shaker or a spoon for remembrance, right? I want to tell the grandkids. Papa, you ate at the king's table once? Yes. Did you really, Papa? I did. Look at my spoon. (laughs) What does the text say? Always. In other words, let it unfold. Maybe that first day, the crippled man, Mephibosheth, comes up to the king's table, and there is his freshly engraved name plaque, Mephibosheth. But he eats there always, and so you watch over the course of time and days past that name plaque with Mephibosheth in it. The name becomes a little less visible because the daily polishing by the servants has polished the name away. He eats continually. He knows the meals. He he knows what happens. He eats continually. So Mephibosheth no longer sits at the table going, okay, which fork do I start with? There's like six of them here. No, it's continually. He's comfortable. To sit continually means that David opens up his kingdom to him. He lets him know of what's going on. He hears the talk day after day. He's welcomed continually. Here's what's so amazing. The reality is David gave to Mephibosheth the seat that he promised his father. Something about him looking down and the seat that was supposed to be for his best friend who died. His son sat in it. That's loving kindness. But you see one one more thing in this receiving. He's welcomed like family. When you look at verse 11, he eats at the table like one of the king's sons. From my understanding, when I look at it, there's two types of people that eat at the king's table. Those that have earned it, the commanders, the chiefs. Your Joabs and Abishais, the men of war, the men of battle, the ones that report to the king, they sit there because they do something for the king. And the king wants updates. Those that come and strategize with the king. But then there's also those that are simply given a chair at the table because they're family. Do you see verse 11? Like one of the king's sons. You can picture the king's sons coming in from their studies and their royal duties. You can picture them all put together, all the signs that that they come from a golden spoon life. They have all of those reflections of their father, all of those signs of royalty and prestige, and they sit down at the table, and because the king is dad to them, they say, Dad, can we eat? We're starving. And the king says, boys, we wait. 
Then you hear off in the distance the thud of the cripple. You sit at that table and you feel the thud where his body's just thrown at the table. And now the final son is there. And they eat. He's welcomed and received at the table, not because of what he's done, not because of who he is, but because of what the king has done on his behalf. Do you know this begins to do something so wonderful in our lives because we are a part of, in Christ, a kingdom of kindness. We are wonderfully brought into the king's family And we are so graciously given because of his loving kindness a seat at his table. Like, will you see how wonderful it is? Do you remember that loving kindness? Not earned, not deserved, have no right to it, but you're given everything. And do you hear what you have, Christian, that comes to you and I in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21? It says this, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. As a result, He has brought you into His own presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. Do you hear the loving kindness to receive you? That you are brought in out of exile, you are brought in in your lameness, and you are by His grace given a seat at His table. To go further, the prophet Micah talks in Micah chapter 4 and verse 6 through 7, where the Lord gives the declare of a day when all of the lame, when all of the outcasts, when all of the afflicted will be brought in, the lame will be made a remnant, the outcast a strong nation, and He will reign over them forever. Listen to what's so wonderful about this. Christ, the greater son of David, set the table for us and gives us a seat because of who he is, not because of what we've done. As we close in this moment, I want you to observe something that I think is so amazing about David. David practices what he preaches. Do you remember the day that Mephibosheth walked for the last time? Do you remember that? The last little walk he made was through the valley of the shadow of death. Dad's dead. Grandpa's dead. And he fell and became crippled. And here he sits at the king's table. I'm reminded of the most well-known psalm that David wrote. Psalm 23. In verse 4... Remember it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then what's verse 5? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness... And the loving kindness of God will pursue you all the days of your life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Do you see what happens in this? You get a picture of the reality that every Christian has when Christ, the son of David, is their king. That he sets a table for you and for me. And at that table is a name plaque with your name if you are in Christ. And there's this reality as we look forward at the end in the book of Revelation. There's this great declaration for you and I that the angels shout and they declare that there is in eternity a table set for all believers. And there's chairs for all that are in Christ in that great table that is set. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we are dressed in fine linen given to us. And we dine And we celebrate with the king for all of eternity. And there's just something sweet about chapter 9 that lets us know that when he talks about the marriage supper, it's real. He does it. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the look at your scripture, but more importantly, to see these revelations of what we have in your son Christ. Thank you, Lord, that because Jesus has come, we have no need to fear. For perfect love has cast out fear. That we have no fear of damnation and judgment. Because, Lord, you demonstrated your own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you have restored I think of your word that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but we are now alive in Christ. And that, Father, your kindness so saturates us that you receive. Father, we think of your words, the greater son of David, Jesus, who said, anyone that comes unto me, I will in no way cast out. The great truth that Christ has gone to prepare a place for us, that if it wasn't so, he wouldn't have told us. He promises to return, to take us to where he's at. And even the promise of that receiving, that Christ is coming, he's coming quickly, and his reward is in his hand. Thank you, Lord, for the great hope we have in the future that we will one day all gather around and feast together at the wedding feast of the Lamb as a bride, finally prepared, and we will dwell with you for all of eternity. Thank you for your kindness towards us. May we not abuse it. May we not trample it underfoot. But may we, Lord, with the kindness we've received, Shower others with such kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.